Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Purpose at Work podcast. This is your host, Spencer Jacobson. And this episode is with Eric Severson, who is the Chief People Officer at DaVita, based in Denver. This is one of the world's largest organizations, a Fortune 250 company. And I just love Eric. I had the opportunity to do this interview in person at their Denver headquarters. I just moved out to Boulder. And so it was a great opportunity to connect in person. And Eric is just a special leader. That's one of the things I can say about this guy. And I'm really inspired by the level of vulnerability and openness he he has in sharing his story, the trials and tribulations, and the self-awareness that he has built along the way, and really understanding how that has made him into the leader that he is today. And growing up in rural Pennsylvania and working at so many great organizations and really bringing mindfulness and personal growth to the forefront of how he helps and supports his people and his organization to find work that they really love and to thrive. Davida is a great example of a very, very successful company that has made personal growth a part of their business strategy from the very beginning. And it's really inspiring to see Davida have so much success in this way. So this is a fantastic episode for anybody that is looking for a case study to bring forward to their organization to make a case for making human development, people development, a focal point of how they focus on growing the business. Enjoy the episode. Really excited that you uh, made the time for this. And I remember us talking about the virtuous cycle. And this is something I'm really passionate about is that win-win dynamic, just standing for what there's a way for it to be good for shareholders and for it to be good for employees. It's They're not in opposition. I'd love to hear your perspective on the virtuous cycle, how that applies to DeVita, and an example of what you guys are doing with that. Sure. My perspective is that it's a gift in a way that millennials have brought to us because millennials, to me, is the first generation, certainly in my lifetime, who didn't accept the premise that business and achieving objectives in business, making money for shareholders, is antithetical to the interests of the people who work for businesses. Mm. There's always an assumption for previous generations that business was all about making money and that was it. And for every dollar you spent on a teammate, that was a dollar that was not going to shareholders. And millennials have said, we don't accept that. We are not going to work in a place that isn't a virtuous cycle, that doesn't benefit all stakeholders in the value chain. Customers, if you have them, are patients, shareholders, teammates or employees, community members. And they have put so much pressure on companies to be able to do both that it's, in, in, in my judgment, created much better companies and dramatically better places to work. Mm. So why does it make them better companies? Because all things in nature and I think in the universe are cyclical in nature and for anything to be sustainable, 
the ecosystem in which it operates has to be one where all the stakeholders are benefiting or else it can't last long term, right? That's true of all natural cycles in the environment, et cetera. When I think about companies, companies that take from the community and take from their teammates and don't give back aren't sustainable. And if you look at companies that have lasted for generations, most of them have found ways to operate where they are benefiting the community at the same time they're benefiting mm. their shareholders. So to me, it's a survival tactic if you're thinking of the long term, not just next quarter's earnings. Right. right. So that's how I think of it. Yeah. There's a lot of movements now around pledge 1%. Uh, which is a big thing in the in the tech community around one percent of profits or one percent of equity or employees' time, and I think it really doesn't even go close to what you're talking about of, of of integrating stakeholder benefit into the business model into the way of operating when it actually can create a sustainable venture over the really long term. I think it's a great start, but when I was at Gap, one of the innovations that we built into our philanthropic ecosystem was moving from a company that wrote a check and we wrote a lot of checks Gap foundation gave many many millions of dollars but we had a head of the foundation who had previously been head of marketing for levi's and head of their doctor's business and what she said was in order for our giving to be sustainable over time, it needs to be a virtuous cycle. And so we're not just going to write checks anymore. We're going to make sure the way we are operating our business supports the community. So we'll continue to give money, but we're going to give money to organizations who offer our teammates the opportunity to volunteer, for example. And we're going to invest in organizations who can create a talent pipeline into our organization. So we had a number of partnerships with external organizations whom we funded. And in return, they provided us with a pipeline of talent for either our entry-level roles or for management-level roles. Mm -hmm. And the beauty of that is then we became somewhat reliant on them, and they became reliant on us, and we on them, et cetera, in a cyclical fashion that creates a healthy interdependency. To me, that's really what millennials are asking for from companies is to be involved in the community beyond just giving a percentage of your profits and beyond just not poisoning the environment and these kinds of things, but how are you actually helping to sustain the communities in which you operate? And recent surveys have shown that a significant majority of millennials have greater faith in corporations to be able to solve social problems than government. So that's unfortunate, and it means that corporations have to step up. I'd love to hear an example of something that you've been able to do with Davida around this virtuous cycle for employees and the environment and the community and the business. Sure. I think there are several, but I'll give you one that I'm particularly excited about, and it's called Bridge to Your Dreams. And Bridge to Your Dreams is a program we conceived just under two years ago, and it builds on the innovation that Starbucks really began several years ago with its fully funded tuition program with ASU, where it offers all of its partners the opportunity to go to college and have that tuition fully paid by Starbucks. What we said to ourselves is, how might we evolve that even to the next level for ourselves? So we said, 
we have a population of about 20,000 patient care technicians who take care of our dialysis patients along with our RNs. And for many of them, they have not found the path before to be able to go to college and they can't imagine how they're gonna do it, but they want to. And many of them wanna be nurses. And one of the facts about becoming a nurse is that overnight would have the effect of doubling that teammate's salary if they could earn a nursing degree. So what we said to ourselves is, how can we go beyond just providing the opportunity for a fully funded education, but also provide a job, a guarantee of a job that pays substantially more at the end of it. Because one of the challenges I think that Starbucks and others have had is a lot of their teammates may go through the fully funded tuition program, get a degree, and they're still, say, a barista at the end of it, and they really want to be something else. Yeah. So what we said is, how might we offer 100% of the, of the teammates who graduate with their nursing degree and get their license a nurse job? And so that's what the program is. And we had our first cohort go through last year. We've got another cohort, nearly 400 people, teammates this year, and we're hoping to scale it up to significantly larger size. And how that represents the virtuous cycle is this benefits DeVita in a number of ways. So there's a nursing shortage that's as acute as it's ever been in the United States. So getting qualified nurses, especially dialysis trained nurses, is incredibly difficult. Secondly, we're all competing for some of the same talent and retention is really difficult right now. So having a reason for people to want to come here and stay here to complete their degree and Mm -hmm. and get their, their nursing license there's a strong driver of retention. For the teammates, obviously, the reason it's called Bridge to Your Dreams is that so many of our patient care technicians dream of becoming RNs and can't figure out the path to get there. So mm-hmm. it's a beautiful example of where this benefits the teammates. It certainly benefits the communities in which they operate, they operate to have, and the families they support to have a higher paid teammate there. And it, it benefits DeVita. I love that. It's such a good example. When did, how did that surface? How did that idea come about? Yeah, I think, I think the way so many of these ideas come about, one, we had a number of initiatives going on to support both better attraction of nurses and better retention of both nurses and patient care technicians at the same time that our CEO at the time, Kent Theory, was about to speak to the Colorado Women's foundation, I believe it was. And he had previously used that occasion as a forcing mechanism to challenge us as an organization to commit to a big community challenge. So a couple years before, he had committed during that forum to have a, a majority diverse board within two years. And he did it. He, he's someone who always keeps his word, so he was yeah. going to meet that commitment. And he said, I want to go and commit to something big again because I want us, I know we'll follow through on it, and I know we will have a huge impact on the community if we do follow through on it. And so he challenged us to come up with something of a similar magnitude that he could announce at that forum. And as we put our heads together, we'd been looking at a fully funded tuition program and the challenge really forced us, kind of in the spirit of necessity as the mother of invention, yeah. to say, how can we go and better and not just replicate what, what others have done, Starbucks and Walmart and some others, but actually design something that solves 
the core for the core reason why you do these in the first place, which is to help someone advance to a different or higher paying career. So that was essentially the impetus, as it so often is, I think, in innovation. Yeah, I'd love to hear. So you, I heard you say that your purpose, your vocational purpose, at least, is around helping people reach their potential and through work, the work experience. If we could turn back the clock a little bit, I'd love to hear when did that start? When did that start to come into your awareness? When did you realize that? Uh, or when did that start to, when did that start to come about for you? Yeah, I think in college. So I grew up on a farm in Pennsylvania, a small family farm where I raised hogs and horses. And I worked on a large standard bread farm after school every day through high school. And I thought my career was going to be to be a veterinarian. So I went to school at Penn State because they had a great pre-veterinary program. And I interned one summer at my local veterinarian's office. And it wasn't what I expected. I think I found, well, when I, I passed out in the first spay that we did, <laughs> I could see the organs popping and all this, and the vet said, don't worry, everybody does that. Um, but then one of my best friends brought in with her mother, her 17-year-old dog, to be put to sleep, followed in succession by another other dog's being brought in to be put to sleep. And I decided, I don't think I can do this. Like, it's sad, it's bloody. I don't think it's for me. It's not what I thought. Like, I loved animals, and this is what I spent my life doing. And I said, I don't think it's for me. But at the same time, what I had been doing for a number of years to make money while I was going to school was teach little kids how to ride horses. I was on the equestrian team at Penn State, and I taught kids how to ride, and I loved it. I loved taking a kid who really had no idea what she was doing and get her to this place where she was so in love with it and, and believed what she yeah. was doing. So after undergrad school, I was um, in grad school and I taught English at Arizona State. And I just fell in love with teaching. I fell in love with the idea of helping people figure out how to do something they don't think they can do and, and master it. And I decided that's what I want to do for the rest of my life. But I couldn't figure out how to get a high enough paying teaching job to pay off all my student loans. So I ended up interviewing with the business majors for business jobs and wound up taking a job with Macy's in their executive, part of their executive development program. And I was an operator at Macy's for a while and then went into HR because I figured out, okay, I thought to myself, what is the part of the business that focuses on human development? And at the time it was called personnel, but I figured that's what personnel does, later yeah. HR. And that's what I want to do. I want to spend my all of my time, full time, helping people develop and reach their full potential, and I've been doing it ever since. When did you, so you, so you mentioned, so I realized I loved helping people find that potential. Did you always connect with that? And, and the, one of the reasons I'm asking is for a lot of the leaders that I speak to, they're still figuring out what is their really core motivating factor and how do they really get connected to their purpose and how do they really bring that out into the work that they do was that just was it somewhat clear to you always where you said well I, let me look at I love teaching riding horses and and I love this aspect of it and it just clicked or was there some navigation that you needed to do in that time period to figure it out I think it's the latter one I think experience is the best teacher so that experience at the vet's office where I thought this was my path. This yeah. is what I want to do. 
actually having the opportunity to dip my toe in the water of what it's really like, putting dogs to sleep, yeah, mucking through cow pastures <laughs> <laughs> to help birth a cow, a calf. Uh, it just it 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 didn't resonate with me, and I think there's an intuitive and emotional part that one has to experience. And I know in, in my career as an HR leader, I've counseled hundreds if not thousands of teammates on their career and run into so many in their 30s, 40s, and sometimes even older who say, gosh, I've been doing this my whole life because I'm good at it. And I've just really realized I don't like it. And that's okay. And yet I think it's even better if you can give young people an opportunity to sample what they might be doing in the future. So I'm a huge advocate of apprenticeships and internships and these kinds of things so people can discover what they like. And I just think you get to trust your emotions. So when I was teaching at ASU, I had a student named Danny once who was a soldier in the first Iraq war, Desert Mm -hmm. Shield, I think it was called. And he was home from deployment, um, but he still would wear his fatigues because he would have to go to uh, the training center occasionally. And I remember when I first was in my class, I thought in the first couple of weeks, oh my God, he's going to fail. Right? He just, his writing skills were so weak. I taught, I taught writing and he, there was so bad grammar and syntax and all this kind of stuff. But he was the only student I ever had who came to every single office hour I offered every time and worked with me one-on-one the entire class. And he ended up getting a B in the class. He didn't fail. And I never had a student no matter how talented he or she was, he was more proud and more excited of the grade he or she got and what they accomplished and he did. And I think I still remember that and that was like 1990 or something because of the emotional impact it had on me. And I think that those impressions, impressions like that help you to know, is this what I should be doing? Does it, this feels really good. That's what I should be doing. Yeah. That intuitive emotional awareness is not something that we tend to pay much attention to in the corporate world. No, I agree. And it's, it is one of the things that influenced me to choose Vita as my next place to be, that our founder, Kent Theory, placed a high value on human development. And we have a function within Vita called wisdom that doesn't report to HR, actually. It reports up to the CEO. He always wanted to report it to him. And, and it, Wisdom, the wisdom function at Devita predates the wisdom movement that's been around for a number of years now globally. And it really focuses on ways of knowing that make you wiser and a better teammate, a better leader. And it includes everything from maybe more traditional leadership development concepts to practices like mindfulness. And if we were to walk down the hall here, for example, we have a Zen room on this floor and Mm -hmm. we do on every floor that's there for teammates to use for meditation or any other purposes and many courses, many offerings, many applications around various forms of mindfulness because of an early recognition here that the work we do as a caregiving organization is very difficult and can be very stressful and a lot of our patients die in the course of our teammates caring for them. And so there's an emphasis, a significant emphasis, maybe more than most other places on how to sustain oneself. So there's a, you know, I think a lot of people think of resilience. There's a lot of discussion of resilience right mm-hmm. now yeah. as a concept. And I think that a lot of people conceptualize that as being about drive and tenacity, which it is. 
but that's not all it is. If you really study the science behind mm-hmm. resilience, it's a combination of tenacity, resilience, focus, confidence, and recovery of energy, rejuvenation, which comes through many different forms, but mindfulness is one of them. It's finding the opportunity to rest and recover. And I think a lot of the science behind that is illustrated with every type of performer, athletes, musicians, business people, that those who have the most resilience actually have the best developed repertoire for recovery. Mm. Or the most ability not to get, I've been thinking about it, as just not getting knocked out of the ring. Not getting triggered. Yeah, I do think that there's an element, certainly of, I mean, for my, myself, I would say I almost got knocked out of the ring in about 2004. Yeah, what, ha- what happened then? A confluence, a perfect storm of what I would call contrast of unwanted things in my life at the time. So I was working for a leader who was very difficult for me. Our styles did not click, and I was stressed all the time. I had lots of bodily manifestations of that. My palms would sweat like crazy, so I had to wipe my hands off so I could use my mouse, things like that. And at the same time, my spouse had a massive heart attack and almost died. Mm -hmm. My father got malignant melanoma uh, in his lymph nodes. I got melanoma, and I moved my home. So there was this massive disruption in my life. And at the time I was thinking, oh, that's the last thing. I, my life is just sort of yeah. coming apart. What came out of it though was a forcing, it was a forcing mechanism to cause me to really examine myself. So I finally, after many years of resisting, went to therapy, got, got a really good therapist, stayed with him for four years and began a long, long course of constant self-reflection and self-education about how to use my mind to the greatest to its greatest advantage and it's not long after that that I started to meditate daily for example and found that to be the most beneficial tool to do what you were mentioning earlier which is figure out how to be in control of my mind which then controls your emotions and it's, I, I see meditation as, besides the spiritual aspect, which is important, a little bit like dog training, if you will. That for me anyways, it's about training my mind to listen when I tell it. So if I'm in a stressful environment or there's many emotional things happening, something bad happens in your life, someone you care about dies or your boss yells at you, it's the ability to be able to focus on something else instead of ruminating and spinning and spinning and ginning yourself up about the negative possibilities and about what might happen in the future or what just happened in the past and be able to focus on the present. And I find that when I am consistent in my daily meditation, which is only 15 minutes a day, not an hour or not half an hour, I find that when I'm consistent with it, when I tell myself in a stressful situation, nope, let that go like leave it, like you tell your dog, leave it, yeah, <laughs> leave yeah. it. If I'm re- meditating regularly, I can leave it like that. When I'm not meditating regularly, I will keep finding myself Hooks over you. and over and over again, ruminating on the thought. So it's really difficult, I find, for many people to begin a meditation practice because it's hard to understand how it can result in so much well-being and happiness. You just have to do it in order to experience it. 
And it's the thing is that I've noticed is it's not about being good at it in the sense that I have a super active mind and I've been practicing meditation for five years, still a super active mind, right? I wouldn't necessarily say that oh, I, when I just sit around that I'm you know, able to let things go very easily. But what I notice is it's just about moving towards that state where you can let things go. It's just about moving towards that place where we can control what the mind wants to do as opposed to saying, oh, I'm just failing at this because I keep thinking about things or whatever type of meditation you're trying to do. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. And in fact, that's what I've told every person who ever told me, oh, I can't meditate. I'm not good at it. When I ask them, then what do you mean you're not good at it? And they say what you just said. Then my response is, well, that's not the point. The point is not to have an empty mind. The point is to train your mind to listen when you tell it to about what to focus on. And so I find that most, so many people get frustrated with meditation and give up. It's because they're achievement oriented and they can't achieve an empty mind. And once they can apprehend, it's not about having an empty mind, it's about the process of continually redirecting your thoughts and letting go as the thoughts come in. If you actually have an empty mind, then you're probably not trying a meditation that's hard enough because you need to keep triggering yourself in more difficult environments, in more difficult moments to let go of thoughts so that when you're in a place in your life where something it's so hard not to pay attention to, like the death of a loved one happens to you, that you're actually prepared to be able to let go of it when you need to. Something that I, I personally am really passionate about is leadership development through the lens of mindfulness personal development, just the, the merging of those two things. I'd love to hear you, your perspective about leadership, let's say in the, the workplace in relationship to mindfulness or some of these lessons that we're talking about here. And, and I, I suppose I would distinguish between these hard skills that people might talk about in the workplace around you know, different things to do with the, the task at hand and then also a lot of the soft skills and how mindfulness and personal growth may play a part in that. Okay. I think that they're inseparable, the ideas of leadership development and mindfulness. And in fact, both at DeVita and at Gap Inc., we integrated the two. And I think this is largely the outcome of a couple of decades of really exceptional human performance science and neuroscience research that has really clearly illustrated that people who are able to be aware of and be in control of their thoughts and their emotions make substantially better leaders. And it's very difficult to be a great leader if you don't have resilience and if you don't have a means of being self-aware and therefore of also being able to control what you think about. So there's extensive work that's been done by the Human Performance Institute, mm, which yeah. is now owned by Johnson & Johnson, but has existed for about 30 years, and the Energy Project, which was, was founded by Tony Schwartz, who interestingly enough wrote Donald Trump's biography, uh, Art of the Deal, but that's not really what he's most famous for. He's most famous for starting the Energy Project, and both of those firms 
spent three decades doing research on what makes high performers high performers. And one of the things they both discovered was teaching leaders how to recover energy and restore energy through self-awareness and through managing your life was as critical as anything. So Tony Schwartz wrote a book called The Way We're Working Isn't Working. And it's really a manual for leaders on how to take a look at your life and identify the places where you are fried, burned out, depleting your energy, which as he points out in the book is an epidemic in the world and especially in the United States that when I re- hit my wall in 2004, yeah. it's because I was following the typical American model of work till you drop and just, just keep trying and keep, keep driving, keep driving, keep driving. And as he points out, what happens eventually, it happens at different points in people's lives, often in their, maybe their 30s, their 40s, or their 50s, is they hit the wall until they learn sustainability practices. And so to me, what great corporations do if you care about the virtuous cycle and you care about teaching your teammates life skills that will help them be great at their job now, but that they'll take with them forever in other aspects of their lives as parents, as Mm -hmm. partners, as community volunteers, is you build into your development programs habits of sustainability in life and and mindfulness practices are just one of those kinds of habits but it can include other things like teaching your teammates how to manage their schedules and their calendars how to negotiate with other people how to set limits other things that successful people do in order to have a sustainable integrated life eric i realized i kind of stepped over this this moment in 2004 and i if it's okay, I would love to go, well, it wasn't a moment, it was a time period, right? But I'd love to go back because what I'm hearing is this was a bit of a rock bottom moment from which things turned and you decided to make some fundamental changes. And I don't want to step over that because that's something that so many people, well, many of us resist having a rock bottom moment, right? We fight for all our lives not to have that down moment where we just say, it can't get worse than this, right? And in it, so one of the things you mentioned was that you found meditation through that process. If you could, and also for the benefit of the listeners, how did you get through that time period? Like what were a couple things that you were able to, or what was a narrative you were able to tell yourself or you, you mentioned therapy as well, but I'd love if we could go a little bit more into that about kind of how you move through that. Cause there's so many people that go through times like this and don't, actually see that everybody else does too in sure. so many ways. At the beginning I tried what I had become a master of and had learned on the farm when I grew up which was just push through it. Tough it out. Yeah, which had been, that was my go-to technique my whole life and it's not that I've given up on that because that still is a part of the resilience that I hope that I've cultivated in life. You know, growing up on, as a kid and getting up at 5am to feed the animals instilled in me a sense of responsibility that people are depending and beings are depending on me that I haven't lost. In fact, to this day, at times when I am overwhelmed with my responsibilities and stressed, I'll find that I'll have the same recurring nightmare, which is that I, I wake up in the middle of the night thinking that I forgot to feed the animals. Uh, and they're all starving <laughs> and thirsty in the barn. And 
what I would say though is that is insufficient. I think that it was sufficient for me through my teens and my 20s and my early 30s just because of my youth and the amount of energy one has. And eventually though, when I say hit the wall, it's that you just, my body really, and my mind and my spirit and my emotions were worn out. So your question was, so what clicked or what things yeah. allowed me to change? What allowed you to move, what allowed you to move through that? Yeah. Part of it, to be quite frank, is not having any other choice. So I think when I, when the ability to just push through it had run its course and have a lot of other options, but to depend on other people. And I'd grown up sort of learning to not depend on other people or depend on myself, which is still, as I said, served me, but it forced me to ask for help. So I think asking for help is something that so many people who are type A or achievement oriented struggle with. And that was probably the primary turning point in me actually being able to fully realize my potential. And if I look at my career from there and how it really took off and the number of really big professional roles I've had since then, that wouldn't have happened without the catalyst of those negative events. And actually, I, there's a ritual I've done now ever since that time, every day, which is in the evenings on the way home from work, I call home to my husband and we each recount three things from the day that we appreciate, no matter how crappy the day was. Mm. We have, we insist that we each find three things, even if it's just that the traffic's lighter today or the sun's out. And then we spend some time describing it. And what I found about that, it's like meditation, it's a habit. And so that's my habit. And every day it conditions my mind to look for what's right mm. instead of what's wrong about the day. So instead of going home and complaining, spending an hour complaining about everything bad that happened, I've, I have primed the pump to be positively focused. And that ritual started way back at, at, at that time about appreciation and finding things to appreciate in order to help set my mindset. And it's one of many, many, many practices I learned at that time through my exploration of other ways of knowing the world and other ways of, of providing well-being in my life. And I've, there's dozens and dozens of these things that populate my day. You know, I've, another one was I put post-it notes around my home or my office saying, do you want to be right or do you want to be happy? It's a phrase that has helped me a lot. It seems sort of silly and inconsequential, but what it's reminding me about is why am I here in the first place? Mm -hmm. Why are we all here? Are we here to get to retirement? Are we here to be happy every single day? And so I think that the openness that I cultivated during that time from asking for help and getting help yeah. from some other people and meeting some great people, I met my person who went on to be my coach at that time. And she introduced me to many of these practices, uh, many other grounding activities. Yeah. And I think what it did is it showed me, it almost like opened a portal in my mind away from empiricism only and fact-based What we can see is all there only, is. That's right. To be able to say what I now say, which is I am open to anything that makes life better. And that has transformed my life. Mm. So say more about that because a lot of people, a lot, a lot of us are really in, stuck in this. We can only measure what matters, right? Measure what matters. And if you can't measure it, then it isn't real. That's a lot of the Western scientific 
way of approaching life and business and our reality. Say a little bit more about if it helps or if it, if it makes life easier, I'll use it. Can you talk, talk a little bit more about that, what that means to you? Okay. So there are many different ways to measure someone's personality. There's the Enneagram, which I love, and there's... What number, what number are you? I'm a three. Okay, cool. And Myers-Briggs, I'm an INTJ. So I'll just speak to Myers-Briggs for a second. So the Myers-Briggs, I think mine is the least common type or something. Uh, and one of the things about it is the N on mine is more the right brain part. It's the po- seeing possibilities in things, into it's intuitive. The TJ, the thinking and judging part, is very much about order and structure. Yeah. So what I find is I'm very attracted to both at the same time. So I'm very attracted to science and analytics and data mm-hmm. and numbers. And part of the reason why is ideas for their own sake are probably great. For me, I love ideas if they make life better. And what I love about science is the ability to take an idea and use a rigorous discipline process to translate it into something operationally useful for human beings, which is why I love my job and why I've always loved working for huge companies, is that when you have to scale a solution to 60,000 or 100,000 people in an organization, it's really important that it work. <laughs> and so I am yeah. a deep adherent and long-standing adherent to evidence-based management practices those that are proven through science and through discipline, rigorous analytics to work. And what I do all day long is look around in every domain, whether it's recruiting talent or training people to find practices that are proven to work better than others and then scaling them them up. So that's half of the equation. So I believe in Western science and, and adhere to it in my own life. And what I learned through that process in 2004 from encountering people who understood other ways of knowing and improving your life is that one of the downsides of the age of reason and the onset in the 18th, 19th, and 20th century of the dominance of like science is that we lost, I feel, as humans, thousands of years of knowing and knowledge about nature and the universe that our ancestors knew and you can find it in writings sometimes in astrology and other places of of understanding of the human spirit and the body and other things that is now being sort of rediscovered so just for example only in the last say 10 years or so has there been the discovery through fmris and other technology of the extent to which there's a neural network around both the heart and the gut. Mm. And in fact, now it's known that the majority of the serotonin in the body is produced from nerve cells around the gut. And what's also only known in the last 10 years or so is that the signals go both ways between the gut and the heart and the brain. We used to think it was all just one way from the brain down to those organs to tell them what to do. So we now know that intelligence comes from the heart and the gut up to the brain, which our ancestors always knew, which is why they spoke of someone having heart or having a gut feeling. And we still use those expressions today. So what I love is this intersection of the scientific, the left brain way of knowing, and the intuitive, the, the, the right brain way of knowing. And it's again, the virtuous cycle of both the art and the science bringing 
greater well-being and value to a person's mm. life. That's how I see it. It's not that one's better than the other. It's not that acupuncture is better than surgery or pharmaceuticals. It's that both together are human outputs that can make someone's life better. So that's what I mean when I say I embrace whatever can enrich someone's life. Yeah, I, I hear that as also just being able to choose, having more choices, having more tools at our disposal, rather than be you know basically prescribing to one dogma as well. I do. I think it's a re, it's a reintegration of life. I feel like what sort of has happened over the last certainly the last century is there's been a disintegration, a taking apart of things that are human and specializing them. And there've been a lot of positive outcomes of that. But even if you just look at the healthcare system, one of the negative outcomes of that is that the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. That you for example, a person might go to all these different specialists and still not figure out what was wrong because none of them are connecting and you don't have the collective intelligence of sort of all of them working together. So it's maybe a metaphor for just, I think, a bigger issue that's starting to be more recognized in human culture about how do you reintegrate life, work and life, different aspects of health, etc. I'd love to hear about, as you, as you start to... I think you, you probably have a pretty great view, I would imagine, into the future of work and where we're going, being a leader for 60,000 people here, and I'm sure you're in conversations with leaders of other large organizations, and so you have this insight, potentially, into what's going on. I'd love to hear what you're interest, particularly interested in or passionate about, about the future of work, uh, something that you'd like to share with our our listeners. Sure. Many things. I'll focus on one, which is artificial intelligence and robotic process automation. And the, the reason, there's several reasons I've been so enthusiastic about them. One, I'm a deep believer in the idea of using human beings to their highest and best use. I had a, a boss, a president of Gap Brand once, who loved to say, only do what only you can do. And what she meant by that was she wanted the organization structured in a way that people play to their strengths. And part of that, as it relates to AI, is the idea that there are many parts of everyone's job that don't fulfill them. That suck. They're, they're boring, they're repetitive, they, or they just don't play to your strengths. Right, right. I love the idea of being able to automate things that don't inspire you so that the human can focus on what only a human can do. Today, anyways, and I think for some time in the future, machines and software will not be able to do what most of the human right hemisphere does, which is to be creative, to create new things, to innovate, to feel empathy and express empathy. So those will be the domains of the human, hopefully forever. And I'm really passionate about finding ways to then change the way we do work so humans are left with more and more fulfilling jobs. So at DeVita, for example, we're running several pilots of AI technology to both improve the service experience to our teammates or our applicants and also to, along the way, create more fulfilling jobs. So for example, we're using a technology called Maya right now, M-Y-A, 
and Maya is a chat bot and the chat bot screens candidates for jobs and there are two outcomes of this first screening candidates is a very time-consuming process with a recruiter just talking to a candidate right. to try to figure out if he or she's right second of all with our getting over three-quarters of a million applicants a year we can't talk to every applicant not even close right so what Maya will hopefully enable us to do is screen applicants much more quickly make it a higher quality experience talk to them more quickly and make sure that every single person who applies for a job has a conversation. I think that's incredibly important because it also will allow our recruiters to really focus on what they do best instead of repetitively screening people, many of whom will not be right, they'll opt out right. other things. They can really focus on how do I prepare this candidate for her interviews with hiring managers, how do I set them up for success, that kind of thing. The second one is one called Talk to Spot. And Talk to Spot is a chatbot that allows teammates who have concerns to be able to call and report those concerns. Previously, we had, like most companies, a hotline. What Spot has enabled, it's now been used with over 20,000 uh, teammates in our, in our DeVita village, is it allows there to be follow-up. So previously, only a small percentage of anonymous hotline calls could be fully investigated because you don't have enough information. Spot allows us, when we need more information, to go back to the teammate anonymously. Spot will tell Spot, go back to the teammate and ask Spencer who else was in the back room, was anyone else in the back room yeah. when this other teammate made a comment to you. And over 80% of the time, the teammate does respond back to Spot, and we are able to follow up and conclude the investigation. So we have, I believe it's about an eight-time improvement wow. in the number of cases we're able to resolve due to having Spot in place. So I think these are examples of the promise of AI to create a better teammate experience and eventually take the parts out of jobs that are not fulfilling. Yeah. And part of what I heard as being really important there is is also helping people to connect to the thing that they're going to do really well that maybe no one else is going to be able to do in the same way. And that you mentioned that's more of a right brain, generally more of a right brain type of activity which is really cool, right? And I also heard you say, let's, let's hope that that is never replaced in some ways by, by AI. How do, how do you think about helping people to identify those parts of themselves where they can say, gosh, I'm really good at this over here and this over here, I'm just probably never gonna be good at it or like it. Well, I'm a deep believer in strengths-based development. It's an evidence-based methodology that you can deploy as an individual, that you can deploy as an organization to help your teammates identify their strengths and then focus on building their strengths. So at GAP, we systematized this by adopting an evidence-based strengths management protocol that used 360 assessments, self-assessments to help the teammate be able to figure out what am I better at than most people so that I can, one, 
continue to develop those strengths and make them differentiated to design my current job if my manager will work with me to be based more on what I'm good at and remove the parts that I'm not good at. And three, career path myself into jobs that take advantage of my strengths rather than Mm. my weaknesses. And so if you develop this as an organizational or personal philosophy, you start to approach all of your life this way, which is to say, how do I construct my life so that I outsource or eliminate things that weaken me, things that don't sustain me, that don't make me feel strong, that I don't love to do, and spend more of my time doing fulfilling things that I'm awesome at. And if you have a whole organization of people doing what they're awesome at, it's a higher performing organization, which is why we adopted it at Gap as a talent management practice that infused all yeah. of our learning and development programs, our talent management programs, because we said to ourselves, if we want to be a high performing organization, we need to get the most and the best out of every teammate which means allowing her to play to her strengths. Eric, why do so many companies really struggle with develop with doing this, basically? I mean, I, I have hundreds of conversations a year with people leading companies, and usually about, you know, around something to do with talent development, because mm-hmm. that's, that's what we do with Guided, and it just seems like very few people have it figured out very well. I think that there's a fundamental misunderstanding that's prevalent about human motivation. So one of the concepts in talent management I'm most passionate about is total motivation theory. So it's really, it's research that has been developed over the last 30 years about what drives human performance. And the fact of the matter is that much of what historically has been taught at business school and that is conventional wisdom inside companies gets it wrong about what motivates people. So for example, I think if you polled most business leaders and asked them, what do you think is the most significant motivator for most people, they would say money. But when you look at every scientific study, you discover that's not true. And the essence of total motivation is the idea that there are these three motivators that have been proven through science are the most important in high performance and it's play, purpose, and potential. And potential just means the opportunity to get better at something and grow. There are then three things called indirect motivators and they're actually the least motivating and it's economic pressure, money, Emotional pressure, telling somebody they do it because they have to, because you told them to, because you're going to get in trouble if you don't or get fired if you don't, and inertia, doing it just because it's the way you've always done it and you haven't thought about it anymore. And over and over and over again, study after study after study in real companies, it, this has been demonstrated that organizations that emphasize design jobs around, design yeah. compensation systems around, design recognition systems around, play, encouraging, incentivizing play a sense of purpose and meaning and the ability to grow dramatically outperform those that just use money as a carrot or stick, use pressure, threats, intimidation in order to get people to do things or where people do things just because it's always been done that way and it's not cool to buck the the current. 
So that's my answer to your question. I think that most organizations still subscribe to the conventional wisdom that to get people to do something, make, make there be a threat or consequence if they don't, and give them money if they do it. <laughs> it also seems like there's an evolution happening around this in that, in some sense, that, that worked well enough to get us here. Right, you know, we've had this generally long bull market for for a long time, or long run up, and it just seems like as you you know we started the conversations with millennials that there's just more and more of a rejection of that way of being managed or that way of working, and I'm also noticing that. You know, I I guess I'm curious about your perspective that we still see this paradigm of people driving to work so they can do jobs that they hate so that they can make their car payment so that they can drive to work again right and just maybe that's a bit of the the downward cycle as opposed to a virtuous cycle what would you say is one one change that we can start to make in the world of work that can start to shift that experience because i would assert that i suppose i would assert that still that the typical human work experience is more of the suffering, not necessarily doing things that they're great at doing, feeling like they don't necessarily have a choice, right? So they're like, well, it sounds great to be motivated by play and purpose and growth, but I have bills to pay and I'm not in a position to make those types of choices, Eric. What's one thing that we can start to do to shift that dynamic? And I'm, I guess I'm asking you to solve the world's problems. But here we go. I'm, I'm, I'm curious. And there's always something that anyone can do. So maybe I'd answer your question two ways. What can individuals do? And then what can organizations yeah, do? I'd love to, yeah. to me, as an individual, I think that we all have the opportunity every day to wake up and say, today's a new day. I can repot myself, replant myself. I don't have to do what I did yesterday just because of inertia, because that's what I did. I would say that even just starting any kind of self-awareness practice, whether it's a mindfulness practice, whether it's taking some sort of psychological assessment profile to understand yourself better and really get in touch with what your strengths are, what your interests are and your skills are and assess your current job against that. I don't buy into the idea especially in the current economy with a 3.6, I believe, unemployment rate, that there are not plenty of other opportunities. So part of what happened to me back in 2004 that I think can happen to anyone is decide that you're important enough to be brilliantly fulfilled in your job. And if you're not brilliantly fulfilled in your job, one of the things that my therapist used to always ask me, are you willing not to have this job? Are you willing not to have this relationship? And what he meant was, not that you have to leave that job. Are you willing not to have this relationship with this job? Are you willing to have a different one either with this job or, or another job? Because to me, happiness or unhappiness is always an inside job. If you're miserable doing what you see as the hamster wheel of getting up and driving to work at a job you don't like, well, who's responsible for that? Who's gonna change that? I mean, you have to, uh, and I think, so to me as an individual, I think part of it is becoming aware and getting outside of the inertia 
of that cycle and ex- that cycle of expectation that this is what life is, that this is what work is. It doesn't have to be. This is, I said, my life mission is that everybody wakes up excited to go to work because they find they get energized by work rather than depleted. So to me, you have to ask yourself, if I'm depleted, can I change something in my current situation? If so, what is it at my current job? And if not, where is there another place for me to be? where what I have to offer is perfect and is exactly what they need. For organizations, I think it's the idea of thinking about differentiating yourself. If what you say is true, and I think it is so many places that so many jobs are unfulfilling the way they're structured, how do I set my workplace apart as a place that people flock to mm-hmm. because they can come here and be better when they leave than when they came? And this is what we tried to do at Gap, and this is what we try to do at DeVita. And our founder here at DeVita has talked about this since the beginning, that he wants teammates to always be able to say when they retire from here, I am so much better because I worked at DeVita than had I not. I learned so many things here that have made me a better mother, a better spouse, better church member, whatever it is that matters to you than I used to be because they taught me life skills. Anyone, any company can do it. It doesn't cost you a ton of money. You just have to think differently about how you're spending the money you have. Eric, as we start to uh, wrap up, um, curious if there's anything else that's come up for you that you want to, that you want to share. Well, one, Thank you, Spencer, for the opportunity to, to talk with you. I think you're incredibly insightful in your questions and uh, your show is doing really important work. I think maybe I would just conclude by saying I'm really grateful to be doing this kind of work at this point in history because there is such an abundance of amazing science, uh, amazing ideas that are available to all of us in a way they never were before through podcasts like yours, through the ubiquity of information on the internet. And I think about the fact that when I first started working in this field, there was no internet and there was barely email. And we kept our teammate files on something called Cardex, where these cardboard cards and you wrote every single change that happened with the team and you knew how long she'd been there by how thick her Cardex stack was. And if we could figure out then how to create meaningful work environments for people, oh my gosh, anyone can do it now. There's so much accessible to you. So I think I am eternally optimistic about the possibilities for anyone listening to this who cares about creating an inspiring differentiated work environment for their people. There are so many ideas out there. Uh, Don't give up. Awesome. Eric, what's the best way for people to follow you or your work or get in touch? Sure. They can follow me on, on Twitter. They can follow me on LinkedIn, both Eric Severson HR. And I look forward to to hearing from them and having a conversation on both of those platforms. Awesome. Thanks so much. Thanks, Spencer. Thank you.